Hello and welcome to Chasing Himalayan Dreams, the podcast. My name is Susan and I'm the author of the best-selling book, Chasing Himalayan Dreams. Have you had dreams you put aside? Do you feel a hiking adventure in the Himalayas is a mountain too far? I believe you can do it if you have a moderate fitness and an inability to let your dreams go. This podcast brings you the book. Every episode is a chapter, like an audiobook. I'm using text-to-speech technology to create every episode. So do start listening and enjoy. Breathe. And the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. The Bible. Were, click, were, click. I peek through the enhanced with blankets curtains. A dim silhouette teeters on the narrow steps taking pictures in the pre-dawn light. It's time for me to struggle out of a warm bed and venture outside to view the sunrise and the other monumental treasures of the Himalayas. Everest and Kanchenjunga. We're too slow. Raja makes a captain's call. We will miss the sunrise if we race off to the viewpoint. Instead we congregate on the open square outside the hotel, stamping our feet to stay warm wrapping scarves tighter, with hands made clumsy with gloves. We wait for the sun to rise, an unlikely community of mountain worshippers in an immense cathedral, in the silence of deep prayer. Thin veils of clouds drift like sacred incense across the sky. No shouts, no loud voices, only whispers, and the click of cameras. I put my camera away. This is a moment for me alone. My words will frame the moment rather than the camera's viewer. The sun rises over the easterly plains and as it edges over the far horizon, the panorama flushes pink. The rising sun gilds the sleeping Buddha from east to west, peak by peak, slope by golden slope, painting it from feet to head. From the peak of Pandim, the feet, sweeping across the five treasures of the Kanchenjunga Massif, then lighting up Kabru South, Kabru North and Raithong before reaching Kumbhakarna or Janu, the nose. But, words fail me. I hand over to Mark Twain. I saw the sun drive away the veiling grey and touch up the snow peaks one after another with pale pink splashes and delicate washes of gold, and finally flood the whole mighty convulsion of snow mountains with a deluge of rich splendours. And Mark Twain wrote that from Tiger Hill, a lookout point above Darjeeling. And here I am at Sundak Fu. I suspect that even Mr. Clemens would be struck dumb. Away to the west, Makalu. Everest and Lhotse await the first rays of the sun. Everest is 146 kilometers as the crow flies, and Kanchenjunga is an incredible 48 kilometers only. I'm at the highest point in Bengal, and from here I can see four of the five highest points in the world. This is a moment of sheer exhilaration. Panoramic visions of the four of the five highest points on the globe. I'm closest to the top of the world, 46 years after I was told I couldn't. We leave the square to walk up to the high point. With a few slapes and slides we scramble to the top of a mossy rock, surrounded by 360-degree panoramas. Worth every step, slip and breath. A place for being, and seeing, and stillness. No clouds hide the mountains. The pale morning sun caresses the white peaks against the palest of blue skies. This is not any mountain. This is Kanchenjunga, made of rock, snow, endless avalanches and myths. Tradition says Kanchenjunga's five peaks are the five sacred repositories, gold, silver, gems, grain and holy books. 
Indigenous tribes believe the hidden treasures are salt, turquoise, invincible armor, ammunition and medicine. When the world is in danger, the treasures will be revealed to believers. The Limbu people believe it to be the home of the goddess Yuma Samang, the goddess of unlimited power, wisdom and wealth. Legend says there is a valley of immortality hidden on the slopes of the Kanchenjunga Massif. In 1925, a British expedition claimed to have seen an unknown creature in the area around Kanchenjunga whom locals called the Kanchenjunga Demon, now known as the Yeti, or the Abominable Snowman. It seems like Kanchenjunga spans from heaven to hell, and everything in between. Hello auntie. Enthusiastic shouts signal it's time to surrender the rock to the schoolboy cohort and wander back to the hotel for breakfast, eggs, Nutella and toast. Rajal joins us to brief us on the day. It's downhill all the way, after three days slogging uphill, it's welcome news, but the farewell to Sundakfu brings tears to my eyes. This would be a great place to stay and write a book if there was heating in the rooms and internet connectivity. We shove our paraphernalia into the backpacks, zip them up tight and leave them for our magic pony cavalcade. We plunge into the pine forests that encircle Sundakfu, with one last lingering farewell look. I won't be back this way. The majestic silver firs that appear in every picture of Sundakfu frame the ice-cold range with green edges beneath perfect blue sky. Yes, the pictures are true. I linger for one last look at sun-soaked Sundakfu before plunging into the chilly darkness of the forest. At times we emerge onto grassy ridges, with views of the sleeping Buddha, or green valleys far below. Again, the silence of the forest is interspersed with the mysterious tinkle of bells, but the forest is too thick to investigate. Oaks, chestnuts and rhododendron creep up among the pines and in less than an hour, tall golden meadows brush our knees. I crane my neck back as far as I can squinting upwards into the bright sky to gauge how far we've descended. I'm glad we did not climb up this way. We pull out our trekking poles as the path roughens and watch where we place our feet. Every step is an act of will. Rock or mud? This is a good time to talk about trekking poles. They are vital on the downslope and we need to adjust them. On the downslopes, the trekking poles need to be longer than when we're climbing uphill. But even the trekking poles are not enough to prevent the occasional slip on the path strewn with rocks and slippery leaves. That tinkling of bells again, this time I'm determined to find it. With a lot of looking, a brown shaggy cow chomps on the grass in a little dell, well hidden by the branches of the pine trees above. The breathtaking vistas unfold around us, at walking pace. I look out across the valley at Sikkim. It's a sunny day and the mist dissipates to reveal green valleys speckled with tiny villages, or homes tucked into sheltered crevices the mountainside. Bamboo forests turn the path into a leafy tunnel. The path steepens downwards. Legs complain with the continuous descent, and when the path climbs, it is a relief. At the top, I rest on the rocks and watch our own pony trail clinking along on the twisting path. We stop and chat for a while. This little group has become my tribe ponies and all. It's time to say goodbye, Kanchenjunga will continue to recede into the distance from now on. As we delve deeper into the valleys, the far ranges disappear. I'm breathing easier, I notice that the tiredness has gone. We wind downhill to Gordum. The buildings below us remain a stubborn matchbox size after what seems to be a long descent. My companions look out for shortcuts again and some of the shortcuts are sheer slashes down the hill. I consider taking a piece of cardboard and sliding down them, mountain bamboo boarding. 
a new extreme sport promising a lot of broken limbs. A rickety bench overlooking the valley tempts us to rest though, it wobbles on the edge of a cliff, and beneath it the ground has fallen away. Not a safe spot, as it holds an inscription to a beloved daughter. I wonder if the daughter went over this slope in a mist that cloaked the fatal cliff. I send up a prayer for the person who lost a child and created a rest for weary trekkers. On the hill slopes opposite, extensive revegetation is underway. Vast squares of bamboo plantations in spiky regimented rows march up to bare summits where a few pines hold out. Bamboo is native to the area and vital for the ecology and plant life. Houses are built from it, baskets woven from it, and fences are threaded together, and everywhere, all poles, except my trekking poles, are made from it. On expeditions in the 19th century, when it was impossible to erect tents, resourceful porters would slash down the fast-growing bamboo and build temporary platforms and shelters for the night. Blue smoke snakes upwards from fragrant wood fires, and some of the miniature terraces are bursting with marigolds and cabbage. Market gardening for the villages around, or even for Darjeeling itself. There is no road, only a path. Supplies come in on the back of a pony or by a porter. A few of them pass us lugging heavy loads. Today is not as hard as yesterday. There's no desperate lung-burning uphill climb, but the 15-kilometer downhill trek is hard on the quadriceps. I cannot take it fast, even the mountain people and the ponies are picking their way down the slopes. By late afternoon we are within shouting distance of Gordum, and I wonder why the name is familiar. It's much like a Viking name but that was good rum, from Bernard Cornwell's Saxon stories about who tread an Alfred in 10th century Britain. This is not Viking country, no rivers here that could take a Viking invasion fleet. We haven't passed a stream all day but there are pipes running down to houses and villages. Perhaps all the water here is spring water? We pass above or below deserted villages, or farmhouses. It could be a single family dwelling, like a farmhouse with multiple houses around it, which seemed devoid of all life. Either they have been locked up for the winter or they all went to the market today. Before we arrive at Gordum, Dali bounds out with hot masala tea and hot pakoras, to rejuvenate us after the long day. I cut my hands around the iridescent mug, close my eyes and inhale the muscatel scent of Darjeeling tea. We sip the tea beneath trees still full of flowers, beautiful pink flowers, until I realize that these are Datura flowers. Datura, the preferred poison to eliminate enemies. Amid this ethereal beauty, poison floats above us. Every part of the Datura plant is poisonous, and it remains poisonous. Even honey from bees that have gathered pollen from the toxic Datura flowers is dangerous. We've sat ourselves down for afternoon tea at the edge of a field of cabbages ringed with marigold. The landowner comes out of his wooden home and welcomes us. Rajal goes off to investigate his new tourist trekking hut. The tourist hut is spanking new and painted in green and red, with a gleaming silver roof. In contrast, his own home is grimy with years of soot from coal or wood fires, and the packed earth floor looks damp. An earth and coal stove, a chula, glows inside the house, and a blackened kettle simmers. Tea perhaps? Tea is always on the boil here. A green and red-roofed Gordum, the prayer flags flutter in a quiet symphony. No wild howling winds in this sheltered valley. Stacks of warm bedding are piled on the divan beds and our backpacks are already stacked neatly against the wall of our room. The room can sleep four people, but it's the two of us only with both the giant beds and a bathroom with a spring-fed tap. We decide to take a bed each to luxuriate in the space. 
stashing our poles in the corner, we fling our day bags off and plonk down on the beds. Firm cotton mattresses, but not lumpy, these are the hand-stitched beaten gadars of my childhood. At the start of winter, the mattress man would arrive with apprentice, spinning machine, sewing machine, bags of clean cotton smelling like clothes dried in a fierce summer sun, and rolls of thick striped or checked fabric. The cotton mattresses and razais or quilts had to be made over every year, and all of them had to be done in a single day. The seams of the old mattresses or quilts would be unpicked, the mattress fabric selected, I loved this bit, as I got to pick my favorite colors, and the dirzy would get to work, whipping up fresh new mattress covers, and then re-spinning the old cotton, and adding new cotton to it before stuffing and re-stitching. Voila! By nightfall we had clean, thick mattresses and quilts that smelt of a golden Indian winter sun, redolent with honey and roses. As usual, the first thing I do is to collapse fully clothed, and booted, onto the bed. Sometimes this was dangerous because, as in Kalapokri, I couldn't get up and miss dinner. At 2,910 meters my breathing is much easier. I drift into a pleasant haze of relaxation when a nearby explosion jerks me wide awake. The brass tap in the bathroom has exploded off the plastic pipe and water is flooding the bathroom. Keith dances around the freezing spout of water to turn it off at the faucet, but there's no faucet, the pipe is attached directly to a hillside stream that is pounding off a glacier high up on the mountain. Dale arrives. Abandoning the tea outside, he and Keith battle the gushing geezer. The magic of duct tape works, and Dale lashes the tap back onto the pipe. When Dale is not masquerading as a cook's helper he's a two-time Everest summiteer. He has skills I can't even imagine. But he shrugs it off, repairing gushing taps as child's play for a Sherpa. After this trek, he is guiding trekkers to Everest base camp. Dale has also become a dad for the second time, but he says his wife doesn't worry that he's away. Winter is a lean time, and with two children to support, he needs the money. Dale looks as if he's about 16 years old but he assures me he is 25. Not bad at 25 to have summited Everest twice. The Sanskrit word for Everest is Sagarmatha, or one whose forehead reaches the sky. The Tibetan word is Chomolunga, or Goddess Mother of the Earth. Both these poetic names postdate the measurement and naming of Everest as the tallest mountain. It is a rocky peak that does not appear to the naked eye to be taller than the surrounding mountain peaks. That was determined by careful measurements and endless calculations, all done without a computer. George Everest didn't have a computer, but he did have a team of very clever Indian mathematical geniuses who crunched the numbers relentlessly with pencil and paper, or even slate and chalk. The explosive water bomb marks the beginning of a pleasant evening, of spicy hot food, warm camaraderie and keen conversation. After updating my journal, I pull on my fur lined dug boots and find my way down a couple of steep terraces to the dining room, and our kitchen hut, where Sham and Dale are hard at work preparing our last dinner on the trek. After dinner we meet the Jamshed Patrio again. We exchange notes on walking and trekking and how it changes lives. It is the last evening of work for Sham and Dale, they have time to chat. They hope for trekking jobs anywhere, but it's unlikely to be in Darjeeling in the winter. I encourage Sham to write his own recipe book. He's been turning out delicious fare, in these tiny little cramped spaces where he unpacks and packs his kitchen every day. No food poisoning, no troubles, except perhaps too much food. Those ponies are carrying a lot of food that I could not eat. 
In this lodge too, it's all Himalayan designer with acres of scrubbed wooden tables, polished wood paneling and shelves groaning with goodies. On the stainless steel stove top, tea bubbles, as mother and daughter clean up after cooking dinner for the other trekkers. It's our last night on the trail. The windows face the mountainside, protected from any wind sneaking up the sheltered valley. In this room, the curtains hang still all night. I can fall asleep for longer stretches and awake more refreshed. We sign the visitor's book with a flourish, below the previous day's guest, from Brisbane, Australia. I hope you enjoyed this chapter of my book. If you liked it, send me a message or let me know. You can find the ebook or print book on Amazon. Also, there's a free book of Himalayan mandalas for you to color in on my website, susanjaganath.com/freebies. Keep listening.